0: Welcome to a Neon Jazz interview with New York City drummer Matt Kane. During our interview, Matt talked about his start in Hannibal, Missouri, his years of playing in Kansas City at the Mutual Musicians Foundation, and with legends like Ida Macbeth and Sonny Kenner, along with the stops along the way in a storied jazz bio, and the one musician he would love to meet, as well as many more surprises. Dig it. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Hey, good, man. How are you? Oh, things are great. Excellent, man. Thank you very much for the short turnaround on this. I really appreciate you talking with us. Oh, it's,
1: hey, the, the, the pleasure's all mine. Thanks Excellent. for thinking about me for it.
0: Oh, absolutely. I love Suit Up, man. I just played a track off your album last night on our show and uh, oh, cool. delighted to hear a Hannibal, Missouri native going to the bright lights in New York City. So I wanted to just kind of talk to you about your life and what's going on in New York.
1: Wow, thanks. Wow, Hannibal, yeah. uh, (laughs) That's quite a a journey from Hannibal to New York, let me tell you. Oh
0: my God, sounds like it. So, let's begin at the Alpha. You were born and raised in Hannibal, Missouri? Yes. And what was it like growing up in Hannibal that led you to love jazz? Well,
1: first of all, um, Hannibal was a place where you could dream. Um, wide open um, you know you could just sky was the limit and um, I was fortunate to have um, just a brilliant band director by the name of Craig Buck and um, he just steered me towards uh, jazz and we, we had a junior high jazz band and a high school jazz band so um by the age of uh, thirteen, I was I was beginning to play in, in a big band, and that was really my training. Um, the first, uh, I guess, from age thirteen to eighteen, it, all through school, I played in big band, and um, that was huge. You know, it's because it's, it's the drummer has the hot seat there. You know, so. Um, that that was a big part of it, and and Hannibal was small enough where, um, you know, you weren't going to get beat down by, by a lot of naysayers or competition. Everybody, everybody was just very supportive, you know, and they, they, um, uh, you know, to go and do something
0: big. <laughs> yeah, cool, man. So, what about your family? What were they like? Encouraging you to get into music?
1: The first drummer I ever saw was. Was my cousin. Um, his name is Mike Leonard. Um, he ended up being the band director at Blue Springs, and then later on, I think he was at, oh um, uh, gosh, one of the Shawnee schools or somewhere down around there. I have to clarify that. But anyway, he, um, he majored in percussion. So. The whole time I was growing up, he was quite a bit older than me by about 15 years, um, maybe even 20 years, but uh, the whole time I was growing up, the the family knew, well, if if Cousin Mike could major in percussion, well, then so can Matt, you know, and um, that was huge, but maybe even more importantly than that was my father. He... um, when I was six years old and I and I first started getting interested in the drums, he brought home a Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa drum battle album.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and although I didn't understand, you know, what they were doing, I listened to it a lot and um it was it was um that was kind of the beginning. He brought home records all the time. I think he figured, you know, um He knew that I was going to listen to rock and roll, um, but he wanted me to be aware that there was a much classier music out there, which was jazz. Um, He wasn't a jazz aficionado, um, anything like that, but he knew that, you know, he wanted me to be aware of that. So, um, you know, he'd bring home Mingus Records, Miles, you know, I think he would read downbeat and see the names and then go to the record store and just buy them without
0: <laughs> even knowing who they were. <laughs> Very
1: cool. Well, yeah.
0: well, that's the Bible, man. I mean, if you're going to go off anything, that's where you'd, that's where you'd go off of. Um, yeah. So let's talk about Kansas City. We, you know, we're based in Kansas City. You have some big names you uh, learned under. Lori Tucker, Ida Macbeth, Mike Matheny, Sonny Kenner, McFadden Brothers, uh, Ahmad. And Karen Allison, what was it like to get your teeth cut prior to going to New York City with musicians of that caliber and the Kansas City scene?
1: It was, um, gosh, it, it, you know, it was kind of like the the the. It's um, I'm trying to really think of the best way to put it. You know, the um, a lot of the. Experience like I came in on the on the blues. That was something I was familiar with. So when I first started playing with Lori, um, you know, that's where I learned a lot about the blues and R and B. Um, and then later I played with Ida, and that was kind of the next kind of the next level of that. Ida was working very steady um, at the time, and um, you know I was going to UMKC. And the, um, probably the key part of it all, though, was, was the, the foundation, the Mutual Musicians Foundation. That was, that was a place where, um, you know, the first time I went there, they ran me off. Yeah. And uh, uh, I didn't go back until I was really confident about what I was doing. And um, just being accepted into the fold at the foundation and to, to go there and sit in and play till 8 a.m., um, on Saturday nights was was huge and it just um, you know just, just climbing I, I hate to call it climbing the ladder but I always wanted to play with the best musicians possible I mean that's the only way to improve is to surround yourself with people that are on your level or above and um, so I wanted to play with the Bob Bowmans and the, the Ahmad Aladins and yeah, you know, the, the Joe Cartwrights and you know all those the the, the top tier players and I just kind of worked my way um, into that position um, kind of tenaciously. You know, I I you know the, the way I got to play with with Al Dean was I just called him up <laughs> yeah. and um, and just told him I, I want to be in your band. You know, I want to play with you and um, you know and he said be at the foundation on Tuesday at three o'clock, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's kind of how it, you know, that started. Um, and, you know, the, a lot of those opportunities came through my drum teacher, Todd Strait, um, who was my absolute drum idol for, for my formative years in Kansas City. I mean, he, you know, making the jump from Hannibal to Kansas City, was a very daunting task. It was tough. I mean, I had a lot of bad habits ingrained. I played very loud. And, you know, I had been, you know, just because I didn't have a teacher, a drum teacher in in Hannibal. So Todd Strait was kind of, I mean, he just, he helped me understand, um, you know, just just how to play the drums. And so when when I started getting uh, solid enough he started calling me to sub for him with Karn uh, with Mike Matheny or Gary Sivils with Interstring mm-hmm. uh, I was one of the few drummers that, that um, you know they, they would call to play with Interstring um, which was huge for me I was the first time I played with Interstring was like the, the top of the top you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the same way with the Sons of Brazil I would sub for Doug Allwater um, you know, playing with Karen, uh, you know, subbing for Todd, um, and she's she was very demanding. Um, you know, you know, expected um, world class level. You know, playing. Um, so, and then, in my opinion, the, the, the really the top of the top was was being in Aladdin's band because I mean I love all the other musicians in town, but Aladdin. Was about something uh, greater, in my opinion. His compositions, you know, he was—he was—he was, in my opinion, he was one of the few people in town, if maybe the only, that was doing original material that had one foot firmly rooted in, in the Kansas City jazz tradition of, of the blues and the modern blues, and then the other foot in the future. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point. I, was, I didn't want to play, um, I felt that, that, that I would grow the most playing original music. And um, I felt that my personality came out the most um, in playing original music. Um, and I just had such great respect for al that, um, you know, that, that, was, that was the top right there for me. Uh, because he didn't just go out and play for money. It was not about money for Aladdin. It was it was about, um, you know, it was spiritual. There was no joking around on the bandstand. There was no bullshit, you know. If you if you showed up in jeans, you weren't allowed on the bandstand. It was it was dignified. You were treated like a grown man, and um, you know, that was that was huge. That was huge. I could go on all day about that, you know. Uh, hey. um, but but yeah, that's that's kind of what it was like. It was just kind of making your way um, through the scene, uh, you know, uh, trying to find just just ways to um, surround yourself with you know the, the the players that were gonna
0: you were gonna improve the most. You know, it's interesting. I uh, just read an article in the Kansas City Star on Aladine uh, after he passed, his widow and. it it talked about the love that they had, and it was a totally uh, inspiring article, and I think it really spoke to the kind of character that he had and the kind of musician and individual he was, so it's interesting you bring him up so uh, sparklingly because this article was really moving, and I actually hadn't had him on the show before, and I uh, grabbed a track and put it on there and spoke about him, and it was it was kind of cool, so...
1: Um. Yeah, he's, um, you know, surprisingly, I think probably because he wasn't out and about playing a lot around Kansas City um, as much as he could have, he was maybe a little bit slept on, yeah. you know? And, and, and they always say that when a person passes away, well, that's when we all discover them, you know? But um, I think the musicians in town really knew it, and... Um, you know, Aladeen wasn't the guy that, that um, as a person, he he said very few words. You know, sometimes if any, he didn't have to speak much, and it was the same way with his playing. You know, he wasn't the guy that was going to barrage you with notes. You know, he was the, he, and he wasn't going to play. You know, twenty choruses. You know, he he, he kind he said what he wanted to say, and I think um, you know um you, you didn't go hear Aladdin's band if you wanted to hear um technical you know stunning virtuosity. Um, it was more of a spiritual thing in my opinion and and he was so dedicated to, to not just jazz but Kansas City, yeah, jazz, you know I mean that meant a lot to him and you know one story that really sums it up for me is we did a record called Time through the Ages in 1990 or 6 I think it was 96 and um, we did a take the very first take of the session and I was overplaying everybody was overplaying ex- except him of course you know here we were a bunch of young guys um, you know just maybe a third his age and we were probably in our minds thinking oh we're gonna you know this is our first record we're gonna kick ass you know yeah. and anyway After the take, he stopped the band, and he just said, terrible, terrible. (laughs) And he said, the the, the thing he said, it really stuck with me. He said, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for you. And it went over my head at the time. But now that I'm, you know, 42, and I I lead my own band, and, and I teach, you know, Um, Not so much for money, but but for a more spiritual purpose. That was the spiritual intent behind Aladdin as as a person. He knew the music didn't belong to him, and he knew that it it was greater than all of us. Um, So he felt an obligation to further it, and and to do that through us, you know, which was incredibly selfless. Every other band in town, it was you know, get the best player you can and the player that can really wow people and, and, you know, and it was more of that vibe, in my opinion, uh, with, with many bands, not everyone, but, um, you know, and let's go out and play as many gigs as we can and make as much money as we can and almost as if to, uh, let's pimp ourselves, you know? Yeah, sure. And, and, and was really, I mean, when he said that, you know, he's like, I'm doing this for you. This isn't for me. Um, you know, it, 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 that says it all. Yeah. You know, it Absolutely. really does. It really, really does. And, and the older I get and more experienced I get, you know, jazz is a. I'm sorry, but you just can't teach it in schools. You yeah. know, it's learned at places like the foundation, you know. Um, and that really, I, I consider the, that foundation. And he, and Aladdin was a, was a big champion of the foundation, you know. Um, that's where Burden Diz had met. That's where all the history had happened. Yeah. And 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 even deeper on a racial level, you know, um, they they could have kept it the black musicians union, but yeah. they didn't. Yeah. They they broke down the barrier and called it the Mutual Musicians Foundation. And um people told me, Oh man, Aladine's not gonna hire you, man. You gotta be black. And uh um, you know, I heard that from a lot of people and before I called him, and I was like, nah, I'm gonna try anyway, you know, and, and he wasn't about that, you know, and there was, believe me, I'm sure he took, he took some shit for hiring a white drummer, yeah. you know, sure. um, and, uh, you know, but, but that just, just, I mean, you know, that, that just goes to show he could've, you know, he could've, uh, hired a lot of other people. Yeah. Um, but, so that's, that's what he was really about, you know, and it's just, now that I'm older, uh, I wish I would've seen it then. You know, I was just 25 years old and wanting to to go out and, and you know, whip the world and whatnot, you know, but, yep. uh, you know. Um, and, and, and the last time I saw him was in 2004, um, I was in town just playing a, a short gig at the Blue Room, and he showed up, which was rare for Aladdin to, yeah. to to go out to someone else's gig. You know, he he was kind of a stay-at-home, and because uh, he didn't have wheels, you know, he didn't drive. Yeah. So, um, and I was really thinking about leaving New York. You know, nine eleven, I had witnessed it firsthand. I was standing on the street when those towers came down, and and the music the music scene just Kind of doubled over and didn't really ever straighten back up again, and I was thinking about leaving New York, and I told Aladin this, and uh, he just said, uh, you know, he said you're doing the right thing. He said you might not, you might not know it now, but just just keep doing what you're doing, you know. And I took that to mean that it's a lifelong study. You know, we all go through periods where maybe we're we're not playing what we want to be playing or, or whatever, you know, but you just keep going. So I stayed, you know, and I'm, and I'm glad
0: I did. That's the perfect segue. When you think about the jazz trajectory or the great jazz story, you know, Midwest to Kansas City to New York, what's it like to live that kind of jazz dream?
1: Um, you know, it's... Um, it's, it, you, you constantly must define the why constantly mm-hmm. um, when you're on the subway with your little travel kit and it's 110 degrees down there and you're sweating and and you have to you have to lug your drum set on a cart up and down the subway stairs because you can't afford a cab well because a cab won't pick you up because they see you with all that shit and they just keep on going yeah so. I mean, when you're in the middle of that and you're lugging your drums up the, the subway stairs and your arms are hurting and, you know, moments like that, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to really dig deep and, and, and define the why. And the, the why is, um, you know, I came to New York to uh, be around all the best players in the world. And, to, you know, it's it's always, ever since I was just a little kid, like 12 years old, the question was, how can I get better? And that, just that one question um, carried me to Kansas City. And man, you know, when I got to Kansas City, it was like, oh my God, how am I gonna do this? And then later on, when I got to New York, it was like, oh my God, like, you know, uh, you know, just just really, um, you know, you're forced to 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 consider that sort of thing almost on a daily basis out here. Um, traffic jams, um, rudeness, um, you know, just just uh, super high cost of living, um, logistics. Being a drummer out here is it's just you know. It's it's a lot of uh, tenacity, and um, and it continues to be. That's the crazy thing. I mean, there are guys that are legends out here, in their in their fifties and sixties, and you talk to them, and they're like, "Yeah, I should really be out on the scene, hanging out. You know, I'm not really working enough." And you're like, "Holy shit, you're a legend, and you're sixty years old, and you're saying this? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it's crazy. It yeah. really is. And sometimes I'm on I'm on a hundred dollar gig with. I mean legends like Steve Laspina and Vic Juris, you know, um, and you're doing like a, a hundred dollar hit somewhere with them, and and you yeah, you just sit and you're like wow, you know, and it keeps it. it it's got to be for the music, you know, yeah. The uh, period, and those moments when it's when it's just when it's so beautiful and the music is coming through you and people are, are, are spiritually uplifted um, you know those are the moments that you you might have one of those moments every couple of months yeah. maybe you might not even have it once every six months and then somehow that'll sustain you until the next great moment and um, um, you know, it almost makes it more difficult because when you have one of those great moments well then you want to top that
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely Well, speaking of that, you know, the payoff of going to New York is that you've got to perform with people like Nora Jones, Randy Brecker, and you were just saying Vic Juris and some others. What's it like to be around that caliber of musician on a regular basis? That's just where you're at. What's it like to perform with people like that?
1: Um, You get all nervous at first, and then when you look them in the eye, you realize, well, they're, they're... they're just like you. Um, one thing I I have really had to learn out here is that I never put anybody above me in, in a personal sense. You know, I mean, if if uh, you know, if there's a giant storm and the lights go out, and my lights go out. Well, th- theirs are out too. Or, you know what I mean, Uh, they got to take their pants down to to use the toilet, just like me. So, (laughs) so, uh, I keep that firmly in mind, you know. Um, But, when the music starts, you know where that caliber, you feel it. You feel that caliber, you know. I mean, being in the studio with Brecker a couple of months ago, he was totally cool. Yeah, man, we're talking, we talked the tune down. The, the take starts and it's like driving a really nice car yeah. you know uh, and when when you touch that gas uh you know where all that extra uh octane it, is is coming from you know and, and um gosh Vic Juris is just you know some of these people are are, are uh you know just such great they, they compose as they play and it just it just really makes it easy, you know. And I could play any kind of music, um, you know. Nora's more on like the country kind of country pop jazz kind of tip, you know. And and Vic is like on this like modern jazz Star Trek plane, you know. And <laughs> and and but no matter what it is, if it's if it's really good, you just feel it immediately when you play with somebody like that. You just you feel that quality come through and everything they do is, you know, especially um, somebody I have to mention, Dave Stryker. Um, you know, I started working with him in my band. And uh, when he agreed to play with me, I was like, wow, okay, cool. And after the first gig, he was like, yeah, man, how happy you haven't called me sooner. And uh, listening to Dave um, is one thing, but, when, but playing with him then you start to realize the depth of, of the man's talent and experience, and and just his, you know, he, he came out here from Omaha, so he's got that tenacity. I think those of us who came out here from somewhere else, and and we weren't jazz prodigies to begin with, you know,
0: Yeah.
1: Um, we've had to fight and scratch for everything yeah. that we've got. Not, not, that, not that the prodigies, prodigies didn't, but you know, Hannibal, Missouri was was no jazz maca, and and um, coming up from there to to New York was just a just a long. You know, you're just you're just in it for the, you know, <laughs> you're just a big long, you know, fifteen round heavyweight fight it seems sometimes, <laughs> and and Dave when when he, man, when he hits it and you, you're playing with him, you just feel this, this power of focus and concentration and experience, and, um, you know, he's amazing. He's truly amazing. Um, and, you know, it's one thing to hear somebody from the audience, but, but when, you, when you actually play with them, it's like, wow, okay, now, now, now I know. And Dave produced the CD as well. Um, and I learned so much from Dave in the four hours that it took to record that record <laughs> yeah awesome that's Uh cool. my god I mean this is a man that's just you know when you're on the road with Stanley Turrentine like he was for ten years um you learn you know and, and Dave was Dave was one of the, the few guys that, that that really worked I think with with um with Jack McDuff, uh, he worked that chilling circuit and yeah. those, all those small places. So Dave knows. Dave can can play a house like almost like nobody I've ever seen.
0: Yeah,
1: you know. I mean, I've you know the punishment has to fit the crime, and this man, he can look at a room and size it up from moment to moment and know what to play, what tune to call, uh, how to how to pace his solo how to even stand. I mean, he could stand a certain way, and people respond. It's crazy, man, I've, <laughs> I've, I've never seen anything like it, you know, so, um, um, you know, Dave Stryker is is just truly, I mean, you know, I don't think he gets enough credit on a international level. I think he's starting to, but he's just, man, that guy is just, uh, he's an ironclad made man of jazz guitar, you right know. On. Just, it's just and, and the thing I like about Dave too you know me being from Missouri and Kansas City and, and uh, the, the blues you know is kind of a common thread um, there too you know the, the uh, you know he's he's totally steeped in the blues but you know he'll dip outside and play some some pretty some pretty hellacious modern harmony too that you know he just there's really he's just got a full entire grasp on what he's doing and why he's doing it
0: that's very cool so let's say someone sits down and reads the reads the liner notes for a compilation album of yours and you have to describe your projects and kind of your lineage to where you are now how would you sum that up in a couple paragraphs to let somebody know where you've started and where you've come to now as far as projects are concerned
1: um I think I think um, as far as as far as all the if somebody were to put together a compilation of my 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 career recorded works and the gigs I've been on and and all that um, you would you would hear in the early days you would hear somebody that. Um, has a lot of fire, um, but maybe occasionally gets burned, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or maybe maybe like may, maybe is a little uh, too strong. Um, you know, when I played with the McFadden brothers, Lonnie McFadden said he hired me because he liked my fire, and that was kind of my thing in Kansas City. Oh man, we Matt, we like that fire, you know, and um, so. Uh, and, and I didn't really realize it at the time, and it's taken me a long time to realize this now, but I have a very powerful emotional response to music and to other players, especially when I'm playing. Like, when I hear something that I really like, um, I have a real power. I'm not one of these cerebral cats that, that can stay, you know, level headed. Like, it's it's taken me a long time to reel it in. So. The, the progression has been, you know, in the in the early nineties, mid nineties, you heard this, this really emotional, fiery player that that was a bit loose and, and maybe a little you know, a little out of control, but but really um, but really down for the cause. And as I've gotten older and I've gotten more in control of my life um and things like alcohol and uh, that which I've had to fight through um, especially once I got through that um, as I've gained control of myself I've gained control of, of my emotions to a certain extent um, and now people are hearing the refined uh, Matt, you know the the. I think now, especially with the suit up record, a lot of com- comments I've heard from folks that knew me in Kansas City are like, "Okay, this is what this is what we knew you could be 15 years ago." Sure, you know, <laughs> all the New York experience and the the going through trials and tribulations, digging with it until I finally evened out as as a man. You know, I got married and accepted responsibility for myself. Um, you know, you, you, you would hear in a compilation, you'd hear somebody that, that finally got over that hump and, and got themselves under control. Um, and probably another common thread would be, um, you know, a lot of the music I've played, jazz, um, um, very heavily influenced by Brazilian music and Brazilian musicians. Um, in fact, that's almost all I played from 2002 to 2007. Was just Brazilian gigs and, and crazy enough, hip hop gigs. And okay. um, the the one common thread would just be I've always, um, a, as I've gotten more control, um, my groove and my my, my ability to um, find find the least common denominator and the simplicity in something. Yeah, um, has grown, especially through hip hop. Crazy enough, uh, and, and Brazilian music. Uh, I didn't need to fill a lot in those musics, and it really helped me realize the importance of one small variation in a groove. You know, and there's there's there's, there's a type of freedom through discipline.
0: Yeah, and
1: and to, to to lay in a pocket, especially when you've got some chops and you're you know you've got a little something that you think you want to prove uh to lay in a pocket is is a real discipline if that's not how you were raised or or you know um if that's not your forte you know and and so everything just kind of has um grown more focused and um more focused and 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 purposeful sure really yeah um there's, there's a real power in, in defining your why and knowing your purpose. And my purpose over the years, one of the things I like most is seeing people happy. Yeah. Um, I don't like to play a jazz gig and see three people in the audience and, and have them tuned out. And, um, and, and I don't particularly like what what I call math jazz which is like all these odd time signatures just coming at you I mean that might be cool um here and there or or that might but but that seems to be kind of one of the current jazz trends that that I just I'm good with it to a certain extent and and and, uh, my hat's off to I mean I love odd time signatures but um you know I think I think uh, uh, ultimately you you are playing for yourself and you want to please your musical standards, but at the same time you want to please you want to heal people and make them feel good. Um, and for me, the, the 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 groove and the pocket and the feeling of the music is really the most important thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's what I've learned from Elvin Jones and and Roy Haynes, and um, Mel Lewis, and all my heroes. Um, it's just the feeling of the music. You could, you could be a stellar player, and, and and everything could be perfectly aligned. Um, you know, there's some, there's some phenomenal drummers out there who are just shitty musicians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to put it bluntly, I mean, yeah. they really are. Or just, <laughs> I won't say shitty musicians, but like, uh, you know, they're great at playing the drums, but maybe not so great at making music. Right, um, and that goes for every instrument, you know. And and uh, um, so that would kind of be the trajectory, you know. And and kind of the master of that is Pat Metheny, who's um, you know, I always I always mention him because um, whenever I go to see him play, I see a guy who has. Like the highest musical standard in the world. And, um, you know, he obviously goes, and his goal is to meet his musical standard first. But by meeting that standard, he's going to make everyone else happy, too. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: you know, and because yeah, we all have heard, Pat's taken some pretty huge chances on records to stay true to his musical aesthetic and what, what he feels this, you know, he, wa- he wants to explore, but I mean he's got I mean, he's got the biggest fan base of any jazz musician in the world, probably. Yeah. Um, so and so there's like that fascinates me. Um, people liking what you're doing and, and smiling and getting off on it and feeling good and, and, and being healed and leaving the show with, with a, a real experience. but yet at the same time, um, the musician, you know, uh, being able to satisfy their musical standards and, and the truth that they're going for, you know, I mean, um, yeah, you can please people, um, but, you know, but, but can you do it without compromising, you know, what
0: you believe in? Absolutely. So, Uh speaking of greatness and compromise let's let's jump into a jazz time machine here let's go back in time if you could meet one jazz musician from any era who would it be and why?
1: boy he would have to be John Coltrane cool um and the reason being is because he was transcendent um, of music in a way. Um, I would, I mean, as far as meeting him, I don't know, uh, I don't know what I would say (laughs) or what I would ask, but I think I would give anything to experience, you know, uh, Coltrane's group with Elvin Jones, who I did get to meet and shake his hand and, and thank him. Um, but I, 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 you know, Coltrane's uh, quartet of the '60s, especially the album *Love Supreme*. Um, you know, Coltrane was maybe one of the few people. I think Coltrane and, and Horace Silver touched on this with some of his records too, um, some of his later, re- his kind of mid-period records in the in the seventies. Um, but but Coltrane in particular was the, um, I think one of the few musicians to, to outwardly um, embrace, uh, make you know making a spiritual statement with. Uh, his music, um, in a, in a in a way that because he didn't have lyrics, but yet um, the, the the way he conveyed his sentiments and his his purpose, um, in particular on the Love Supreme album, um, to me that's one of the ultimate things one can can do with with their with with their music is to um, uplift humanity, and Coltrane did that. Yeah. And and Love Supreme's not an album that I can put on while I'm cleaning the house. It's not a, it's not a, uh, 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 any kind of white listening experience. You know, I have to be ready for it. I have to, you know, it's like if I if, you know, it's like a prayer to me. In fact literally it's a prayer he he plays you know the the poem on the inside of love supreme mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a prayer if you open the liner notes there's a prayer and he actually put that on the music stand in front of him and played it you know syllable for syllable um in in uh um on the record and to, you know that just blows me away That. Yeah. To me, that's um, in particular after nine eleven. I was really looking for a way to say something in in my music, um, and I, you know, I was going through a real uh, you know tough time, and and I, I was kind of in the hip hop realm, and I, I wrote a uh, a lot of lyrics and, and tunes, and I just really wanted to say something about everything that was happening and um, I think Coltrane uh, you know in, in his time I mean think of what was happening in 1965 64. yeah or um, you know people being burned in churches and, and that sort of thing and and he um, you know during that era uh, he came right out and addressed it you yeah. know in through the music yeah and um that's not something you see often uh, sometimes people say oh you shouldn't make political statements with music or you shouldn't you know you got to be careful um, with that you know you can alienate people or whatever you know but I mean look at look at like to me two albums that, that are kind of parallel are like Marvin Gaye, what's going on and love Supreme yeah because you know these are people that came right out and and um and kind of made a plea to the world in a way you know and uh, so yeah Coltrane would be
0: would be it for me right on so th- the, this interview there was a lot of questions I had in between that you've answered here and there and I'm getting right down to the end of the interview my last question to kind of get to know who you are what's the last song or album you listened to before our interview
1: the last album um, it was an album um, last night it was uh, it's called Midnight Express by Jimmy Smith um, that was that was um, that was the last album uh, I was listening to um, I, I haven't heard any music yet today so cool. uh, that was last night Midnight Express by Jimmy Smith and um um you know because right, right, mainly because um, I'm doing my research on organ drummers and uh, it's a whole realm that, that I've, I I kind of slept on for years and there's just some amazing drummers in that realm um, and I'm just fascinated by simplicity yeah. and organ drumming is the the, the, the peak of jazz. Drumming simplicity, um, where one small change in the the groove can, you know, can can make a huge difference, or uh, you know, a, a switch to a uh, a certain part of the symbol can can change the the, the thing, or, or, or you know, uh, and the drummer's name is Donald Bailey on that record. Mm-hmm. Um, he's played some fascinating beats, and uh, so. Um, I'm doing my homework, and and also I just enjoy. I just love organ, you know. I just the, the more I listen to it, and the more I play with organ players, um, you know, that's a real special kind of uh, rhythm section relationship, uh, an organ player and a drummer. Yeah. This um, it's it's, it, it's been done by many different combinations of cats, and you know, Larry Young and Elvin Jones and. Um, you know, Jack McDuff and Joe Dukes and Don Patterson and Billy, Billy James. Um, and I'm just now learning about this whole world. Um, because when I was coming up in the 80s, man, it was, you know, um, that was, those records just weren't out there in Hannibal. Or even in Kansas City, for that matter, you know? Um, so uh, I didn't really know. Yeah, but there, there was, there's a couple there's some really good organ players in Kansas City though Everett Devan and uh, and he, he, he used to work with a great drummer named Marvin Jones I think was his name but um, at the time I didn't really appreciate that like I do now Yeah. so, so just uh, you know and Jimmy Smith my god I mean I, I, I got to see Jimmy Smith once uh, in like the late 90s uh and just just a real feisty character, man, and and the organ is just it's a wild beast. It's a just a f- phenomenal instrument. I mean, really, really something. So uh, I'm I'm doing my my research and and uh, enjoying it. So that's that's what we're spinning in
0: the car, Midnight Express. Very cool,
1: oh, man. <laughs> no, go ahead. Um. I can't. I think that was. Oh, and, and and I was listening to it on the way home from a concert. I went to hear the Freddie Hendrix Quintet last night. And cool. That was that was still kind of kind of in my ears, uh, to Great great quintet with um, Cecil Brooks the third on drums. Sweet. Uh, just a phenomenal drummer. Really a good guy. Powerful drummer too. Absolutely. Uh, so. Uh,
0: yeah that's that was it was a fun night last night right on man matt this was this was wonderful a refreshing interview. I really appreciate you taking your time out. My pleasure. Thanks again, Matt. Oh, Joe, hey, thank you, brother, man. I I really appreciate it, man. Absolutely, man. Have a good day. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players doing that jazz these days around the world and in Kansas City. And thanks to Matt for his time and insight into his craft. It was a good one. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can visit all things Neon Jazz at the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music my friends.